The reflexive annoyance people generally have against those trying to change the status quo can be particularly profound in the field of medicine. Thank you for tuning in to another Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Pratt. And I want to tell you that doctors often go against the status quo with their own care when it comes to end-of-life situations. There was a terrific article in the Wall Street Journal on February 25th, 2012, and the writer was Dr. Ken Murray, a retired clinical assistant professor of family medicine at the University of Southern California, and the title of the article was, Why Doctors Die Differently. There's a paragraph where he explains, and I'll quote him, it's not something that we like to talk about, but doctors die too. What's unusual about them is not how much treatment they get compared with most Americans, but how little. They know exactly what is going to happen. They know the choices, and they generally have access to any sort of medical care that they could want, but they tend to go serenely and gently. Yet, when I, or doctors who think like me, say to a patient that appears too frail and sick to get chemotherapy, that I think chemo will kill them faster than not treating the cancer that made them so sick, it sometimes understandably upsets the patient, and on occasion, I have upset a few oncologists in my community. But to be fair, oncologists are also a varied group, and some totally agree with my opinions on these matters, or at least strongly consider what I have to say. And what we are talking about is partly an art and partly a science, knowing who will be harmed more with certain treatments, and how to best care for a person is not an exact science, and it's why a computer can't replace physicians and nurses. But we do have some data and also experts to help guide us. Let's start with the Journal of the American Medical Association on June 11, 2008, on page 2669, that seem to agree with what I just said, so I will quote that. They say, The largest study of matched patients who received hospice and no chemotherapy versus those who did not receive hospice care but had chemotherapy showed that the survival was significantly longer for hospice patients with lung cancer and pancreatic cancer, marginally longer for colon cancer, but no different with breast and prostate cancer. The authors concluded that this was consistent with chemotherapy not prolonging and possibly shortening life of those that are eligible for hospice. And I think that's one of the key points. We're talking about people that are so sick that they are eligible for hospice and not people early in the course of their cancer. Now, let me temper that paragraph just a little bit more. That statement won't be true forever, as there will come a time when aggressive treatment at the end stages of those cancers may indeed result in longer survival than a palliative approach. But at this moment in human existence, giving a poison to slow down cell growth doesn't always do the body good, at least at the end stages of some cancers like lung and pancreatic malignancies. The fact is, humanity has made awe-inspiring progress in medical care over the last century, and that will continue. Chronic myelogenous leukemia being halted by targeted drugs like tyrosine kinase inhibitors like Gleevec is phenomenal. But still, no matter how much denial we employ as a coping mechanism, we can't extrapolate those successes for all terminal disease. 
getting back to the point that we still all die. Even if you are an Arab sheik and you have incredible wealth and you can rent out an entire floor of the most famous hospital in the world, at some point there comes a time that those docs and nurses can't keep the function of your cells from shutting down. So the question becomes, why do we offer interventions that we know will ultimately not help a patient? First of all, we hate making patients feel they have been abandoned. We also hate the feeling of helplessness within ourselves that makes us feel like failures. During my first podcast on end-of-life care, I mentioned we must respect our survival instinct, but we also have a compassion instinct. That compassion instinct works in different ways. One way is that we want to stay positive and hopeful, sometimes at the risk of perpetuating false hopes. But the other side of that is that most of us don't want to see people needlessly suffer. Therefore, there is this battle. When are we harming a deteriorating patient by not disclosing what we really believe will happen because we don't want them to give up? So let's turn our attention to a quote from the Annals of Internal Medicine from December 16th, 2008, which they said, Overall, 93% of surrogates felt that avoiding discussions about prognosis is an unacceptable way to maintain hope. Uh, which is an interesting quote because it does mean that probably about 7% think it is okay or best to avoid discussions about prognosis. And subjectively, I do feel there is a minority of both patients and surrogates who feel that way in my own practice. But for the most part, family members want straight talk about poor patient prognosis. Researchers conducted face-to-face -face interviews with family members of seriously ill patients to determine their opinions about balancing hope and telling the truth about poor prognosis. Nearly all of the surrogates said that withholding bad news was not acceptable. They felt that knowing the truth was important because it gave them an opportunity to prepare emotionally and practically for a loved one's death. Part of the problem with discussing prognosis is the cruel irony that the longer you as a physician know the patient, the more inaccurate your opinion about prognosis becomes. When you need help with estimating survival time, doctors with palliative care experience can be an important resource. And quoting from the Journal of American Medical Association from February 11th, 2009, page 654, they say, quote, their new perspective can be useful because prognostic accuracy declines the longer the physician has known the patient. And that's the end of the quote. But along those lines, the better you know a patient, the less us doctors want to discuss end of life. And to back me up on that opinion, let me read a passage from the Annals of Internal Medicine from February 7th, 2012 on page 209, where they say, Many physicians avoid end-of-life care discussions until death is imminent. This late timing may be a manifestation of avoidance. Most such discussions occurred in the inpatient hospital setting. This finding suggests that acute medical deterioration and not the diagnosis of incurable cancer triggers physicians to talk about end-of-life care. 
The literature has also shown that physicians who have close long-term relationships with patients often wish to avoid end-of-life care discussions. And that's the end of the quote. So there you have it. The longer you know somebody, the less accurate your opinions become regarding prognosis and the less you want to talk about prognosis. And that is why these discussions are often handled by hospitalists and critical care doctors and others who are meeting the patient and family for the first time. By the way, it is not only important for the patient, but also very important to the family that we make choices that don't cause needless suffering. And the New York Times had an article on June 7, 2011, where they said, Researchers have found that family members are less likely to experience prolonged depression and grief when their loved ones are spared grotesque medical interventions and receive only comfort care at the end of their lives. And just a few months later, also in the New York Times on October 5th, 2011, the paper was summarizing other new data relating to that topic, saying, The most comprehensive examination of operations performed on Medicare recipients in the final year of life found that nationally in 2008, nearly one recipient in three had surgery in the last year of life, Nearly one in five had surgery in the last month of life, and nearly one in ten had surgery in the last week of life. So now that we have some important facts in our arsenal to guide us and our patients, is there a way to summarize what has been said in this podcast episode? No, not really, but... Arthur Kaplan, in the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU, wrote something in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, November 2012, on page 1041, that is worth sharing. He said, Physicians and nurses need to be measured in offering hope to patients and families. Hope is a powerful ally in fighting serious disease and terminal illness. But when false hope is tied to expectations for miracles, then hope is converted to an expectation of a positive outcome when none is possible. Miracles happen, but expectations for them ought to not be the building blocks for comforting patients and families. Short-term goals and little victories are a much more sound foundation for hope. And... That gets back to an article that I was reading in the journal called Today's Hospitalist in May of 2012. And the title of that article was interestingly called When Optimism Isn't Called For. And I was reading that article and thinking, I mean, who wants to be against optimism? That's like being against puppies and ice cream. But this optimism bias does hurt people. And I think we have to acknowledge that as sad as it is. We have to be realists, and there's a Dr. Douglas White, who is an associate professor of critical care medicine and director of the program on ethics and decision-making in critical illness at the University of Pittsburgh, and he was interviewed in that article of Today's Hospitalist from May of 2012. And he says a lot of good things, but one of the lines that he uses, I think I will use in my practice, is saying to a family, I want to share with you the possibility that this may not go well. Because that's a line that doesn't have 
a ton of certainty, and he does talk about how families and patients may have heard 10 years ago when a doctor in the intensive care unit said their mom was going to die, but she lived, and now it's 10 years later, and the doctor was wrong, and certainly that is true. There are occasions, and maybe more than just a few, where we are wrong about prognosis. But it's still very important to plant that seed and have that discussion early about prognosis because it does take time for patients and families to process that information. And what Dr. White explains is that we can't expect them on the very first discussion about that issue to come to some profound decision every single time. What Dr. White says is, I think doctors should have a default expectation that several conversations will be required for families to come to terms with a poor prognosis. Because getting back to what Dr. Kaplan had said, I think the small victories Dr. Kaplan was talking about are achieved by guiding the process to acceptance, which can take some time, and then taking steps to alleviate suffering instead of assaulting the incurable, even though I acknowledge that assault often comes from a genuinely good and admirable, yet mistaken and deluded place within us. You have been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Perrott.